0: you imagine every time you go to the grocery store trying to figure out well what do they have and what do they don't have and here I have a recipe and I'm trying to figure out they don't have X well maybe Y will work maybe Y in a combination with Y and Z will work that's sort of what we deal with every day now we don't have this we don't have that maybe we can use this and we'll we'll get uh, that would let's put it this way that would get the job done not necessarily the best but it was something that would actually enable us to give you know will enable us to deliver adequate safe care.
1: This is Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. What do you do when the hospital runs out of drugs? Today, we jump into the middle of the surgical theatre to find out. What are these shortages and what, what medications are we looking at?
0: Uh, We're looking at just just about everything. Jake, we have a problem in everything from narcotics or painkillers to drugs that increase blood pressure, that decrease heart rates, to local anesthetics that freeze parts of the body. We have no class of drugs almost that's not been affected by the drug shortage.
1: In June, the American Medical Association announced drug shortages – were posing an urgent public health crisis. According to the drug shortages list from the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, there are 194 drugs in the States where supplies are currently falling short. James Grant, president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, says while no area of health is left unscathed during a shortage a lack of anesthetic drugs in particular is causing some huge anxieties.
0: Let me give you a drug that actually is used every day in this country, and it's called hyperbaric bupivacaine. And that's what pretty much every woman that's undergoing a cesarean section gets. That's something that I can tell you today, anesthesiologists throughout the country are doing workarounds to try to make it safe for mothers delivering babies.
1: What would clinicians then use as an alternative, typically?
0: We're doing, We're using other drugs that aren't as good, but we'll, like I said, will enable us to deliver adequate safe care.
1: And what is adequate safe care?
0: Adequate safe care is you know, the, mother's, the mother's numb. She doesn't have to go to sleep. We're using other drugs that will enable us to let the mother continue to be awake. Um, is the onset slower? Yes. Is the level different? Yes. But is it safe? Of course.
2: The most crucial time for a patient and the most dangerous time for a patient in theatres is when they're going to sleep and when they're waking up.
1: Judy Smith is a perioperative nurse here in Sydney and says the surgical theatre is an already tense environment without the worry that the drugs needed to keep a patient unconscious could be running in short supply.
2: We're knocking people out, we're stopping them breathing, we're then artificially ventilating them. It is. It's very high-pressured.
1: Before we unpack what causes a shortage, it's important to know that the process of sending you to sleep for a procedure involves much more than counting back from 100. So sedation is a spectrum. This is Rodney Mitchell, president of the Australia-New Zealand College of Anesthetists. And quickly to clarify, in Australia... They're called anaesthetists, and in the States, they're known as anesthesiologists. And so on this spectrum... There's lighter sedation, and then heavier
3: sedation, then unconsciousness.
1: It's also important to note that the term anaesthesia is somewhat of a misnomer, where it doesn't just mean putting someone to sleep.
2: It actually is referring to a triad, and the triad is narcosis, analgesia, so pain relief and sleep.
1: But Rodney says regardless of whatever the anesthetic drug or wherever on the spectrum of sedation with anesthesia there's always need for the utmost levels of caution.
3: When you make somebody unconscious that's a serious thing to do. And when someone is having their you know abdominal cavity opened up or their chest cavity opened up or I mean that, that's a major physiological
1: stress that requires not just the anaesthetist, the one who administered the anaesthetic, but a whole team, the perioperative and intraoperative. The perioperative team are the ones who care for the patient before and after surgery. And in perioperative nursing, there are four main roles.
2: We have the anaesthetic nurse, which assists the anaesthetist. We have instrument nurse, which assists the surgeon. We have a circulating nurse, otherwise known as a scout nurse, who kind of manages the room. And then we have what we call a PACU nurse, post-anesthetic recovery room nurse.
1: These roles aren't necessarily limited to just one person either, where there could be multiple people overseeing the same thing. The same goes for the intraoperative team, the practitioners in the theatre at the time of surgery, who oversee a lot of the monitoring that's taking place. We've got a lot of monitoring.
3: I mean, at any one time, we would be monitoring, I'm going to say, you know,
1: 15 variables. Most monitoring is done today through non-invasive measures of your vitals, your blood pressure, your heart rate, but also things like the amount of anaesthetic that's going into your body.
2: So you have to be monitoring your patients carefully. You have to be watching your patients And also being skilled enough, knowledgeable enough to then manage it, like identify it quickly and then manage it. So that's even before surgery starts. And even during surgery, things can go wrong. There's an extremely rare condition called malignant hypothermia, which basically patients, um, they melt from the inside. It's an endocrine response and it's a response to a drug we call succomethonium, which is a paralysing agent, and also they can respond to the inhalation gases that we give them.
1: With any medicine, people can also be allergic to particular anaesthetic agents. You mean experiencing like an allergic reaction once it's been administered? Yes. What happens then?
2: It's a little bit more difficult with under anesthetic because once a patient's off to sleep, they don't manifest the normal, typical anaphylactic reaction like you would see in your eye that was just awake. So it's kind of like a diagnostic thing. Like They can get a rash, they become harder to oxygenate, their lungs become stiff, might see some swelling. Because the
1: surgical theatre is such an intense environment... With all those bodies in the theatre at one time, and because administering anaesthesia has so many variables, Judy says the entire team needs to be on their A-game all the time and be ready for any external factors, however big or small, that may cause a disruption. Have you ever been in the hospital environment and there's a particular anaesthetic drug that hasn't been on hand?
2: Yeah, that's happened a couple of times over the years. Yep, we've we've had shortages of uh, thiopentone, we've had shortages of remifentanil, but there is always an alternative.
1: Judy makes an important point, and that's a shortage doesn't necessarily mean that a hospital is entirely out of drugs because there are backups. But the process of finding alternatives can be tricky, accounting for potentially unknown allergies or determining which drug to use if everything's seemingly in short supply. And also, anaesthetist Rodney Mitchell says, there's an anxiety in administering an anaesthetic you don't always use.
3: It's an uncomfortable feeling when you're not using the drug that you
1: would otherwise think would be the right anaesthetic agent. A survey from the American Society of Anesthesiologists found when practitioners were forced to weigh up their options and use a different anaesthetic during a shortage, this led to a number of scenarios. Some were using more anaesthetic drugs overall during surgery, some were using more types of drugs, and some were even dipping into older and outdated drug supplies, leaving many concerned about the implications this may have for the patient. James Grant, president of the society, says practitioners in these cases are doing all they can. How can we kind of pinpoint where, where this problem is stemmed from?
0: We know where a lot of it stems from. Some of it's multifactorial.
1: Holts in manufacturing are usually the cause for a sudden drug shortage.
0: We had, you know, 50cc bags of normal saline, which is essentially just, you know, fluid. And that was pretty much for the U.S. It was all produced in a factory in Puerto Rico, which was demolished in the hurricane.
1: Pharmaceutical giants Pfizer, Bristol Myers Squibb and Johnson Johnson all reported some degree of damages from Hurricane Maria that hit Puerto Rico last September.
2: The ongoing crisis in Puerto Rico is igniting fears of nationwide drug shortages.
0: JFK Medical Center says Hurricane Maria hit hard its pharmacy department in Edison, leading to a supply shortage. Puerto Rico is home to more than a hundred makers of pharmaceuticals and medical supplies. It's been an issue nationwide for hospitals and medical professionals. So that one we know and the, the, what we learned from that one is pretty much all of the 50 cc bags of normal saline were produced in one factory.
1: Sole contracts with pharmaceutical companies. Rodney Mitchell from the Australian New Zealand College of Anesthetists says is a problem that plagues Australia. Also,
3: the hospital will sign a contract with drug provider A, and that will be the only contract to provide a certain drug. And it's you know that's that's a tenuous arrangement, and it's surprising how often there's a break in the supply.
1: why might it be that a hospital only has a single standing arrangement for a particular type of drug? Is it that perhaps that's that's all that they can afford or are they potentially the only supplier of the drug that they would need? No,
3: it, it wouldn't be the latter. It would not be they're the only supplier because, um, you know, as far as I'm aware, all the drugs we use are made by multiple suppliers. I, um, my understanding is that it's a contractual arrangement. They've got a good price from drug company A and therefore they, probably, they use that supplier. Having said that, we could do more to support local production, which tends to be more predictable. Overseas production, you are more at the whim of factors outside your control. And we do seem to increasingly source drugs from overseas. Right. Part of the global market, I guess.
1: Disruption in the manufacturing process, James Grant from the American Society of Anesthesiologists, argues is only one side of the story – where sole sourcing of drugs is hurdle number one. But hurdle two is getting more generic drugs onto the market. And when you say bring generic drugs into the system, what does that mean?
0: Generic drugs, if, you know, when a drug is first comes out of the market after all the research and development, we have what's called a hero. It's a patent.
1: Pharmaceutical patents have raised concerns around the globe when it comes to drug accessibility. Patents offer a protection period of 20 years, where during that time, companies are legally protected from copycatting, where in pharmaceuticals, this prevents other companies from making the same type of drug in the same way until the end of that period.
0: And then after X number of years, it goes off patent, and anybody then can make that formulation.
1: Patents in this way can then limit what's available, not only on the market, but what's available to hospitals, as other companies are legally blocked from making their own version of the same drug. And when one company has the monopoly on that drug, they're usually extremely expensive, where the price of these drugs will only go down and the legal blocking made void at the end of the patent period. James Grant argues, as drug shortages are an immediate problem, these patents – have made it difficult for anaesthetists and anesthesiologists around the globe where they're not just stopping companies from making alternatives, but preventing the potential for more drugs, period. And in particular, more drugs being available to avoid a shortage. Although Australia has experienced a number of anaesthetic drug shortages over the years, perioperative nurse Judy Smith and ANSCA president Rodney Mitchell both agree that the situation here is nowhere near as dire as in the United States. But that doesn't mean we're removed from the equation. If Australia has contracts, single or not, with pharmaceutical companies in the States, We're also open to these sudden halts in manufacturing, just like the US was with Puerto Rico. But we're also vulnerable due to our own intellectual property law. A 2016 inquiry report by the Australian Productivity Commission offered a number of recommendations in regards to pharmaceutical patents, in particular, one referring to the Extensions of Term Scheme, The scheme allows already existing patents owned by pharmaceutical companies to qualify for an additional five years of protection on top of the already standing 20-year term. The report found, however, that extensions under this scheme do little to boost drug innovations, leaving some concerned they're ultimately an attempt to hold the market with more expensive drugs for longer periods of time. The Commission's report argued that the scheme be considered for reform, where reforming EOT periods would both lower pharmaceutical costs in Australia, but also save consumers and taxpayers more than $250 million a year, and ultimately lessen the blow for hospitals during a drug shortage. The Australian government is yet to enact these recommendations. While certain parts of the world are experiencing drug shortages, there are many communities around Australia running low on anaesthetists. ANSCA president Rodney Mitchell says, for one, becoming an anaesthetist is a lengthy process. There's the initial six years of medical school, followed by a two-year-long internship, with another five years of specialist training on top of that, learning about anatomy, intensive and perioperative care, So there's at least 13 years from the beginning of study until an anaesthetist is fully qualified out in the field. But also, for those who do become certified, Rodney says they're not going to where they're needed most, in rural and remote Australia. As a nation, we
3: have enough anaesthetists, but we do have a distribution issue. We have more anaesthetists in the city, we do in rural areas, and then we have more in rural than we do in the remote areas. So that's an ongoing issue which we are
1: trying to address
3: and which the rest of society is trying to address too in many regards.
1: And when it comes to, say, you have an anaesthetist that is working in a rural or regional community, what kind of responsibilities might they have that their urban city counterparts would not?
3: When I was a remote area practitioner, 800 k's out of Alice Springs... You need to look after everything. So road trauma, people having big strokes, heart attacks, epilepsy, lots of tourists who, you know, rolled the car, people who've been stabbed. So if you've got a difficult case, you can't just, you know, send them down the road to the hot shot surgeon because down the road is 1,500 kilometres away. It is more comfortable in the city, I think. Now, I say that carefully because there are plenty of people in the city who are doing really tough stuff. So, I was, you know, I'm not saying working in the city... is walk in the park is not at all. But when you go out to the country, you do need to be prepared for the fact that you, you are going to be probably working harder, doing more on call. You are on your own. And when you need extra help,
1: it won't always be there. With fewer practitioners in these communities, a drug shortage can put even greater stress on the regional anaesthetist to make the correct informed decision when choosing from alternatives. Perioperative nurse Judy Smith says there's another opportunity here, and that's to train and allow nurse anaesthetists, one of the four roles in the perioperative team, to not only help inform that decision, but to make it and administer the anaesthetic.
2: They're not doctors, they're nurses that are trained and specialised to become anaesthetists. The closest thing we have in, here in Australia, and there's only a handful, are what we call nurse sedationists. And they're allowed to give sedation, so a bit of propofol, a bit of um, midazolam, that kind of thing, for endoscopy. So for endoscopy only. So that's kind of as far as we've got here in Australia. UK, US and France have got them, but not in Australia.
1: However, Judy explains there are a number of barriers in the way preventing this from happening
2: the Anskirk fraternity are not keen at all.
1: Meaning the college of which Rodney is the president.
2: To have nurse anaesthetists in Australia, even though they've been popular overseas for many, 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 many years. Why not? I think the the concern from the anaesthetic fraternity is around who's responsible for them. Is the anaesthetist, is the anaesthetic medical fraternity responsible for them? Are they standalone? How much responsibility do they have? At what point is, is a case too technical for a nurse anaesthetist? Will they take their jobs? Like, there's a lot of guidelines and parameters, but it's very, very successful overseas. And it, and it would be beneficial in Australia, particularly in areas where, because we're such a big country, such a remote country, where you don't have an anaesthetist.
1: In regional Australia, Judy explains that many general practitioners do train in anaesthetics.
2: So if there is an emergency, like someone's you know get their leg chopped off out on the farm and you're waiting for the you know, care flight to come in and get them, then the GP is actually trained to be able to manage that at that point in time.
1: So there are more practitioners who could play parts of the anaesthetist role to combat the challenges of short staffing or a drug shortage. But Judy argues, even though we've seen the system work overseas, here in Australia... The idea remains on the back burner. Coming up, the troubling origins of anesthesia. We're back with Judy Smith.
2: Back in the eighteen hundreds, there was no anaesthetist. so the first anaesthetic that we ever got was ether. They used to like put a cloth over someone's face and then just drip ether. And the thing is, no one ever knew how much to use. A lot of patients were given too much and died. It stinks. It's highly flammable, uh, very unstable. What and is it? Ether. Ether. It's it's a natural liquid. It's like if you if you inhaled enough petrol, you get the same... Well, ether is in petroleum. It's one of the ingredients in petroleum. It stinks. And then in the 1800s, they found morphium. Morphium is a derivative from the poppy plant. So that's what we got morphine from. So they started using morphine to help with surgery but there was never an anaesthetist, so it was only ever surgeons, and they used to just either intoxicate their patients or give them something to bite on. Then, once ether, <laughs> ether came a bit minor, became a bit more popular. They decided, well, they need someone. The surgeon can't do both; he can't be doing the operation and be dripping ether in it. So they would get an assistant, and they'd often just pluck. A student out of the audience say so he hold this mask and drip, <laughs> and then they would pay this assistant money out of their own pocket for doing that, and then um,
1: this is still kind of in that surgical environment. Yeah, when yeah. So this is so this surgery. is
2: still sort of like late eighteen hundreds, where it really took off is in World War Two. There was a, a surgeon by the name of Doctor Cryle and. He worked very closely with a nurse called Agatha Hodkins and he would get her to do the anaesthetic-free surgery. So she, in a sense, became kind of like the first anaesthetist in a way. Like she would, or documented anyway, nurse anaesthetist, I guess you call it. So she would pop the patients off to sleep, but she she went one step further she actually started monitoring patients she started to watch their breathing and count their breathing and look at the kind of response patients were having to the ether she even went around the wards at night and looked at the difference between patients breathing during the day and during the night so she actually did a lot of research and so they they started to lose less and less patients because of the way <laughs> lose she, was, she was able to monitor them and then in, the, in World War II, when they're out in the field, they actually started using the French nurses and the English nurses and US and some Australian nurses as nurse anaesthetists. So, you know, if you watch MASH, it's often males, <laughs> but really it was a lot of nurses who stepped into that role. So they were perioperative nurses who would be scrub scouting would then be said, oh, you know, go and do the ether, go and do that. And she actually opened up a school to start training nurse anaesthetists, which are very common in America and in the UK and France. So it was her school that designed that and built that, and it's just flourished.
1: Jumping back to ether, the anaesthetic agents that we use today, are they originally coming from some natural sort of source or do we synthesise them? What, what's How are they made?
2: Some are. So a lot of the inhalation agents no, they're all synthetic, the gases, the inhalation gases. But a lot of drugs that we give patients are natural. So digitalis, which is what we use for irregular heart rates and heart rhythms, actually comes from, it's a plant. Digoxin is a brand name and that comes from the digitalis plant. We know morphium comes from the poppy plant and opium. So a lot of drugs that we do give that are, you know, muck around with the brain are natural. That's why people smoke a lot of things. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Think Health is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Health is made in the 2SER studios in Sydney, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and we're also on iTunes. I'm Jake Malcolm.